Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, a metaphor is a figure of speech which makes a comparison between two things that uh, aren't necessarily related, but share some common characteristics. Maybe you've heard the Robert Burns poem, which begins with a couple of metaphors. My love is like a red, red rose uh, that's newly sprung in June. Um, I won't quote the rest of it, but that's a metaphor. Love is not a, a rose, obviously, but it's like a rose and He doesn't exactly come out in the poem telling you how it's like a rose, but it's a metaphor all the same. Um, A metaphor helps us understand concepts. And in chapter 2, Peter here hits us with a number of metaphors with which he describes the church. He's already mentioned in the previous verses that the church is like newborn babes. Uh, The church is a spiritual house. And And then we have these several in verse 9, uh, a, cho- a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Well, why does Peter just barrage, give us this barrage uh, of metaphors to describe the church? What's he seeking to communicate to us by doing this? Well, certainly we'll find here some encouraging truths to help us as Christians in our relationship to Jesus. Now, before we look at those metaphors that he lists here in verse 9, let us look at why the church is as he metaphorically describes it. He says that we are this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And then he tells you why we are these things. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, first of all, Christians and the church, Christians as individuals, the church corporately uh, has been called. We've been called, called out from the world, called out from darkness to light. We have heard the call of God. We've heard the call of the gospel. We've had the inward call of the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and helping us to see uh, that we are in need of a Savior or else we are are lost. And we've heeded that call and we've responded to the Lord by turning from our sin and putting our faith in Christ to save us. So we have been called. And notice the, uh, the, the picture here that he gives us. We've been called out of darkness. And, and once we were not a people, and once we had not received mercy, so without this call, people live in darkness, uh, spiritual darkness. And when you think about darkness, uh, you know, what is the picture that you get there? You get there of 
not being able to see, you're in darkness, you, you can't grasp or understand, you, you're, uh, you, you can't see your way, you're lost. Uh, all these uh, uh, pictures come to us as we think about darkness. This is the person that's outside of Christ. Spiritually, they are lost. They are dwelling in darkness. Uh, they, they don't have any way to grasp or understand or see things as they really are. They can't see the truth. And they've been excluded. They're not his people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. On Sunday afternoons when I was growing up, we would often go to my grandparents' house, which was basically across the field, uh, around the corner, if you drove. Uh, we, we grew up together, and we would sit there uh, and talk. And, uh, of course, it was usually some gossip about the people from around there. Uh, of course, I grew up about 30 miles east of here, small community where most everybody was related. And so some stories would be related about the goings-on of some family or some person and just the shame of it all. And my grandfather, every week, would say something like this. He would say, under, kind of under his breath, but where my grandmother could hear it, and would say, that's her people. And of course, my grandmother was kind of a feisty lady, and she did not take that very well. And she was like, There's, those are no people of mine. And of course, then it would go back and forth. Of course, they were all related to one another, which is uh, another story all in and of itself, but not my people. You know, I don't want to be identified with those folks. I'm not related to them in any way. Well, that's people without Christ. God is saying, they're not my people. They have no relation to me. There's no connection to me with these people who are excluded from Christ. They're not my people. It's kind of funny to think about my grandmother saying it, but not so funny when God says it of someone, to be excluded out of fellowship with him. And then there's this idea of no mercy. Of course, if, if you receive mercy, you're not getting what you deserve. But if you do get what you deserve, what you're getting is punishment from God or judgment from God. So here, here are people, if, you're, if, you're not, if you haven't heeded the call of the gospel, you're living in darkness. You're excluded from God's family. You're, you're on the outside. You're, you're persona non grata to God. And you are under judgment and punishment. And so the most important thing we can ask today is, have we heeded this call of the gospel? Have we turned to the Lord? Have we, he's calling to us and saying, anyone who, who comes, uh, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, I will save anyone. Part of what we do here at First Presbyterian Church each week is make that call, to call people to himself. We proclaim Christ and him crucified. That's our primary purpose as a church. That's what we're supposed to be doing in the world is pointing people to Christ to, to get that call out so people can, can hear it. Have you heard it today? Are you in, in the light? Uh, are you part of his people, part of his family? Have you experienced his mercy? So those are the people that we're talking about here today that these several metaphors apply to. And, and, it's, and it's those people, the reason that he has called these people to himself is so that they, these called ones, can proclaim the excellencies of him. 
proclaim the excellencies of him. Uh, that word excellencies is a, a word that can mean the, uh, the, the value that he has. Uh, it, it points to all that's great about the Lord. And I'm sure he's especially pointing us to the fact that he is a God who has called us. He has shown us mercy. He has uh, opened up and shown us light. He's shined a light in our lives, the light of Christ, the light of the gospel. He has, he has done something about our sin and darkness. And Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has come in. And he has revealed that to us. And we are to proclaim it, to proclaim it with our lives, proclaim it with our lips, to show the world. So when you look at these metaphors, we, we think about it in reference to what it is we're supposed to... Why are we a chosen race? Why are we a royal priesthood? Why are we a holy nation? Why are we God's possession? It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved us. Well, let's look at these metaphors. First, he says that we are a chosen race. Now, Peter had a, a number of uh, Old Testament scriptures in his mind as he wrote this. Maybe he was looking at uh, Old Testament scriptures uh, when he was writing this letter to the church there. And all of these titles that we're looking at referred are, are titles that were used for Israel in the Old Testament. The church in the New Testament has been grafted in, as Paul says, to the people of God. So everything that applied to the people of God in the Old Testament applies to the church in the New Testament. We are, like Israel, the chosen race, the chosen nation. Deuteronomy 7 would apply to Israel. Of course, Moses is speaking to the people there, but it's true of the church as well. Moses says this, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, of course, the, the, the fact that he's, uh, the, that he's pointing to uh, is the fact that Israel was nothing great. Israel was not a big, powerful nation. And God says, you know, I want that nation. And he's not like the kids on the, uh, on the playground when they start picking teams. You know, they always pick the best athlete for the team. You know, I want you on my team. That's not the way God worked. He didn't pick the biggest, the fastest, the strongest. He just picked Israel because he decided to pick Israel. It was his good pleasure to pick Israel. And it's true of the church. It's true of, of us as individuals. It's true uh, of the corporate uh, body of Christ as well. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. It was not anything that we've done, nor was it because we were good or gifted or powerful or any other reason that the, that the Lord opens the eyes of a person like we are to make us see our sin in need of a Savior. It's just God's merciful work in our lives. We owe it all to Him. 
And we're no better than anybody else. Because he didn't, he didn't pick us because we were so great. We're sinners just like everything else. We, we should just be grateful that he did choose us. We should never be self-righteous because we didn't earn it or deserve it. A self-righteous person thinks that they are better than others. A chosen person recognizes that it has nothing to do with his or her self and everything to do with the Lord extending mercy to them. Rather than being self-righteous, this knowledge should make us deeply grateful to the Lord because, as Paul says in Romans 9.16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The Lord has chosen us to be his people so that we might proclaim his excellencies. And, and wouldn't you proclaim that? I mean, think about that. If you were uh, an orphan, which is another metaphor for, the, for uh, us as Christians, we were, we were orphans, fatherless, and God looked down upon us and he has adopted us into his family. He has chosen us. I'll never forget hearing a preacher uh, preach a sermon on adoption one time, and he himself had been adopted not as a baby, but as a, a, an elementary age child. And his mother, who adopted him, went through the book, it all looked at pictures of all the children, and just, it just, she just, he just struck her. No particular reason. Uh, not that he, she saw him out running on the playground, and, and not that he was anything great to look at, but she just decided that was the one. And he was adopted into her family. Now that preacher, he grew up to be a preacher one day, well, he sang the praises of his mother, obviously, and how godlike she was. And what a great testimony. He was chosen, and he proclaimed the excellencies of his mother. We are chosen, and we proclaim the excellencies of our Father, that God has shown us mercy, and we share that with others, not because we're better than everybody else, but because God has chosen us and he's merciful and, and maybe whoever we're speaking to who hears us proclaiming these excellencies, maybe they're one of the chosen too. They just hadn't realized it yet. So we're a chosen race. We're also a royal priesthood. Uh, he uses the adjective, first of all, royal. Now we don't live in a monarchy where we have royalty, so this term which is familiar is not part of our experience. Now, I lived in England for over seven years, and I was always astounded as an American observing uh, British culture the privileges of the royal family. And, of course, we often see television specials about the royals on TV, but they had every luxury that you could imagine in multiple forms. They had palaces, multiple palaces, multiple castles. Uh, they had e enormous yachts. They had unlimited funds. And they didn't earn any of it. You know, the people just gave it to them, which always uh, graded me wrong as an American. They were granted for no other reasons than their family connections because royalty is inherited. Now, I'm almost 100% certain that nobody here is royalty, though everybody who does their ancestry uh, seems to trace their ancestry back to some royal person. Have you ever noticed that? We, we all have royalty in our family, which is, is absurd. Probably everybody here, if we traced our ancestry back truly, just common folk all the way back to Adam. Nobody special. Which is okay. 
because we are special. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Well, with this in mind, what Peter is saying to the church is very astounding. The message of the gospel uh, that we've heard is, is saying that people become adopted members of the royal family by being connected to King Jesus, the King of Kings. We're part of a royal family. And just like royalty, the priesthood in Israel was open to only a select few. You think about uh, in the Old Testament, priests could only come from the tribe of Levi, and the high priest, uh, there was only one of those each year. He was the one who represented the people before God. Ordinary people did not have direct access to God like we do here, but the priests did. They appeared before God on behalf of the people in order to take the people's concern before God and apply God's provision of forgiveness. Peter calls the church a priesthood. Every Christian has direct access to God through Christ, and we can pray and seek forgiveness and bring our concerns and the concerns of others before God's throne of grace, just as we've done today. Now, Peter's reminding us of this high status that we have as uh, the royal priesthood and the privileges of the believer in Christ, the status and privileges of kings and priests. As Peter states, you know, once this was not true of us, but now it is. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He could have said, once you were nobodies. But look at the privileges you have now in Christ. And glorify Christ. Proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you to be royal priests. What a great privilege that is. And you can see, Peter is motivating us to serve the Lord, to be holy, which is, brings us to the next one. We are a holy nation. Now, when we think of our nation, the United States of America, we think of our geographical boundaries and the people who dwell within those boundaries. We are a nation, generally, of immigrants, uh, unless, of course, we are uh, Native Americans. Other nations are formed along ethnic identity and geographical boundaries, like Israel, composed mainly of Jewish people who lived in uh, a land in the Middle East. The church, however, is not formed along ethnic lines nor geographical lines. So how can we say that the church is a nation? How does that metaphor apply to the church? Well, maybe we can look at to sports as a good illustration these days, fans uh, often uh, who, who have an allegiance to a certain team, uh, they often call themselves uh, the, the Rebel Nation or the Bulldog Nation or the Tiger Nation or the Gator Nation or the Saints Nation or however many nations there are. Now, of course, uh, it's not anything to do with geography. These people might be from anywhere on the planet, but they are united in their love for their team. In the same way, the church is a nation in that it is composed of people from all over our planet whose supreme allegiance is to our heavenly King, Jesus Christ. So the church is a nation, a nation who proclaims the excellencies of its King, the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, the one who has made us uh, citizens of his kingdom, the one whose kingdom will go on forever. We are part of that nation. And, you know, we talk about the American way as Americans. You know, we are proud of, of the, the way that we do things. Well, there's a way to do things in God's nation. 
We should do things God's way as his people, to be a holy nation. In our world, our culture, we're faced with much that is unholy, impure, and immoral. It's easy for us to become desensitized to the immoral immorality around us. But God has called us to be different from the world. We're part of a nation. We're part of the holy nation of God. And let's promote his ways, his kingdom, his, his nation. And then finally, we are a people for his own possession. I love those shows where they uh, go on a treasure hunt, however they go. I, I, I've always wanted to be an archaeologist. Uh, when I was in school, my mother said they'd never make money, so I became a preacher. Uh, there's no logic of being applied here. But I've always had a, a, an interest in buried treasure and archaeology, and who doesn't like the Indiana Jones movies? Uh, I often look out on the beach, you know, you'll see people with metal detectors and they're looking around for buried treasure. Uh, and I wonder what valuables they might find. I'm sure a lot of change, but maybe once in a while they'll find someone's wedding ring or car keys. And I think probably losing the wedding ring would be very devastating uh, at the beach because it's got, uh, um, of course, the monetary value of the diamonds and the gold but also the sentimental value, what that ring symbolizes. Wedding rings are among our most treasured possessions. Now, according to what Peter has written here, God has a treasured possession, but it's not a ring, it's the church. A treasured something he values greatly. And I love the, the definition for the, word, for the word here, possession. In one of my Greek-English lexicons, it says, that which is acquired presumably with considerable effort. And that's exactly what the church is. Uh, something that God has acquired through considerable effort. Christ came and died for the church. He valued the church so much. God, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, which is the church, those who believe in him, would not die but have eternal life. Now, what better motivation is there for proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light than understanding the considerable effort that the Lord went through to make us his people and that he values us that much. And now he, he continues to value. We are a treasured possession of his. In our day, church membership is maligned as something not so important, and our commitment to a local church body is understood as disposable. Being a part of the church should never be taken lightly. We are part of the church. The, being a part of the local church is a picture of our inclusion in the church universal, for which the Lord paid the highest imaginable price to purchase that for his own. He values it highly. What is a, it's a privilege to be part of his church, and we as the church... The people of God, his treasured possession, should proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, finally, you know, all this is in the context of Peter talking about uh, living a holy life, growing in our relationship with him. He's encouraging that by telling us our status and, and our purpose to point people to the Lord, to, to, to ourselves be pointed to the Lord constantly, to proclaiming his excellencies, to be focusing in on who he is because he's the one and his kingdom is the one that will go on forever. But holiness is not just being set apart from something. 
but being set apart for something. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here. Yes, we need to put away sin, as he says in verse 1, and, and uh, resist and, and, and get away from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our soul, to get away from the world and its worldly systems, but also that we are set apart, we are holy for something, to bring glory to God. And God's mercy, as we experience that, as we think about that, God's mercy is that fuel that, that, that helps us, that fuels our service to the Lord in the way that we live, uh, in our resisting temptation, in our sharing it with others. As he goes on to say in, in the later verses, you know, how, how we live amongst the people, do those good deeds, proclaim the truth, live it out in our lives. May God give us grace to do so. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for those who have gone before us as we think about the Reformation today, people who were faithful to you, people who are part of the, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, people who belong to you. Lord, may we, like them, uh, bring glory to you. May we proclaim your excellencies to the world in how we live and, and through our speech as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.